Good morning. The title of this morning's message is Better Than Types and Shadows. This morning we're going to be looking into chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews, where the author continues to expound on the superiority of Jesus as our high priest of a new and better covenant. The new covenant is so much better than the old because of the new and better high priest and the new and better realities that our high priest reveals to us and provides for us. The old covenant never offered the Hebrews the spiritual realities that we enjoy. Just about everything in the old covenant was a type or a shadow that was always meant to point them to a greater reality that would come through Christ and the new covenant. So the author of Hebrews is trying to convince his Hebrew baby believers that they need to let go of the tangible realities of this natural world, like the temple and the sacrificial lambs, and start trusting in the spiritual realities that can only be seen with the eyes of faith. The Apostle Paul tells his readers that they are spiritual babes <laughs> because they don't understand their righteousness. He told them that they were great with love, that they were walking in the fruit of the Spirit. God was evident in their life, but they had problems with their faith because they had no confidence that they were actually right with God just because of Jesus. So this morning is going to sound a lot like what you've heard in the past. I, in fact, preparing this message, I'm like, I'm sure they're going to be bored to tears, Lord. I've said the same thing for the last seven chapters. <laughs> and he goes, yes, and they need to hear it again. <laughs> One of the things that uh, has been happening in my life is the Lord's been showing me how having this solid foundation of grace causes stuff to just fall off of you. Think about it this way. Satan throws darts at our heads. He can't touch us, but he can throw darts at your head. <laughs> and you're like, ooh, <laughs> pull that out, cast it down, <laughs> rebuke it in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and, and recently, I haven't had to do that. The arrow doesn't stick. It just falls to the ground because it's like, no, <laughs> grace. <laughs> I don't have to entertain any thought the enemy throws at my head. I don't have to even bother with it when I understand. Because, see, he's always going to try to get you to look at you and what you did and what you said and what they did and what they said. But when we have this foundation of grace that I am right and approved of by my Father just because of Jesus, then I can rest when I have a need. I can really believe that he has granted me all things that I need for life and godliness, that that is the reality. And I just have to keep trusting him. He will provide the answer because he is so good. He's already guaranteed it. So when I was telling the Lord that I've said the same thing for seven chapters now, <laughs> and he says, but look at the difference it's just making in your life. You've always, since you've come into the message of grace, been secure in this truth. But when the truth starts working without you having to work it, that's awesome. <laughs> Blink. Nothing. That's nothing. I know the truth. So that's my hope that even though you've heard this 
<laughs> seven times already, <laughs> that you'll hear it again and let the Holy Spirit remind you that this is always the message we need to hear, always. So before we jump into chapter eight, we have to review chapter seven because I really could have started at seven and just read all the way through and get into chapter eight, but I didn't want to torture you <laughs> by re-preaching last time's message. So we're going to jump right in the middle of seven and work from there, beginning with verse 19 of chapter seven. For the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing and no one spiritually perfect. And so it is ridiculous that believers in the new covenant think by keeping the rules, keeping the laws, and even instituting laws from the old covenant <laughs> as a way to make ourselves better. That following rules have more power than the indwelling Christ. Well, no rule ever made Satan stop. Never. It never put him down. It never silenced accusations. It never did any of that. In fact, following the law makes all of that worse. <laughs> because if there's a law, you will find a way to break it <laughs> without even trying. <laughs> when we put ourselves under a law, we're suddenly trying to make ourselves right and approvable by keeping that law. It never worked for them, and it doesn't work for us. The law made nothing spiritually perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And of course, our better hope is Jesus, who has made us permanently, spiritually perfect. I always used to pray, God, please make me perfect. I hate being imperfect. <laughs> if you would just fix me, Jesus. <laughs> I didn't know he already did. <laughs> and because I didn't know he already did, I wasn't living it out. I wasn't living in that peace. I wasn't living in that joy. I wasn't living in that confidence because I thought there was something wrong and I needed to work really hard to fix me. And I never could. And that's because I was never meant to. I was always meant to look to him and receive that spiritual perfection, that born again, new creation that is spiritually perfect. Now, we cannot get any more perfect in our spirit, but <laughs> we can learn to better live in accordance with the leading of the Holy Spirit so that outwardly that we more accurately reflect who we are inwardly, which is one spirit with Christ. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. This is a big deal for the Hebrew baby believers he's talking to because they needed to recognize that God never swore an oath that the old covenant priesthood would last forever. They just assumed it would. So for them to be able to, in their mind, go, no, we really can let go of this because it always had an expiration date. That's not the way they normally thought. Verse 21. But this one, Jesus, was made a praise with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And as we saw before, whatever the Father swears an oath to is irrevocable. <laughs> there will never be another priesthood or another covenant. 
Again, this is important for the Hebrew baby believers, but it's also important for the believers today because there are lots of believers who think that God's going to have another covenant with Israel. That God's going to do something different for them. That somehow they're going to go back to temple and sacrifices. And Christians want to help them do that. Why don't you commit adultery on God? Because <laughs> he left that bride. <laughs> and that system doesn't work. It didn't work the first time. So it's important that we understand this is the only salvation. <laughs> Jesus is it. The new covenant is it. What the Father has accomplished through our Lord Jesus is final and forever. There is now only one covenant that is in force. And this is still important today because there are those who are teaching that God didn't do away with the old covenant. What is God doing with two wives? <laughs> no. <laughs> Israel is not under their own separate covenant, which we're going to see. It was finished. It was completely finished. And it's important for us to know that so we don't go around trying to help people build temples. <laughs> we need to keep professing Christ. So there is only now one covenant that is in force, and that's the new covenant of God's grace, accessed only by faith in the Lord Jesus. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. I love the word guarantor. They also use the word surety. And this is a person who guarantees the person who uh, has lent money that the payment will be made. If I can't make my payment, I have a co-signer who will. That's who Jesus is. He's the guarantor. He has guaranteed the Father that all of our sins are paid for. <laughs> you know what else he does? He guarantees to us that all of our sins are paid for. And if I fall down, I don't need another covenant. I don't need another sacrifice. I don't need another Jesus. The one I have is perfectly sufficient. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He has the never-ending life, eternal life, that he gets to minister to us. So he always has a better covenant. Verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save, sozo, save, heal, deliver, provide, protect, and make whole, to the uttermost, which simply means completely and perfectly, those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The reason this is important for these Hebrew baby believers is because they knew <laughs> that they had Jesus. These were believers. They were operating in the gifts of the Spirit. These are believers, but they have very little understanding. And so he needs them to learn to trust what's inside of them rather than what's on the outside of them. So he's trying to convince them that God wants more than forgiveness of sins. This makes perfect sense if you're a Jew, because for a Jew, if you were in right standing with God, you could trust God to bless you and provide for you. You're right with God, you get his blessing. That was the whole point of the old covenant, that God would have this umbrella of grace that if you lived by the law and faith, they were supposed to trust God in the middle of it, <laughs> that you would have this umbrella of protection, this umbrella of provision. That was what they always believed. It's hard to have a job when the whole world wants to kill you. 
It's hard to be a farmer when the whole world wants to kill you. It's hard to take care of your family when the whole world wants to kill you. This is where these baby believers were at. So they're like, um, if we got the right God, then why are these bad things happening to us? Why does everybody want to kill us? <laughs> so the question in the Jewish mind would be, what am I doing wrong? And how often have, have you thought that when something untoward came toward you? And you're like, what did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? But God is not punishing us <laughs> for our stupidity. <laughs> so he wants them to understand that salvation is, even in Christ, bigger than the forgiveness of sin. Because a lot of the church doesn't believe that. So that's what he's wanting to tell them, that God is able to save you completely and perfectly, even physically. But you got to have faith. <laughs> you got to have confidence that you're right with God. And see, that's what they didn't have. They didn't have confidence that Jesus, all by his little old self, was enough. I mean, they had offerings for everything. And if they stop giving all those offerings and things start going wrong, then they're going to think, well, maybe I need to start doing that again. So God will be happy. This is what the author is dealing with. He's trying to tell them, no, your salvation is physically and spiritually. Everything in your life comes under the umbrella of being sozoed. And then he tells them that Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is not pleading with the Father, please forgive them. He's not pleading with the Father, please heal them. He's not pleading with the Father, please X, Y, or Z, fill in the blank. Why? Because Jesus has already provided it all through his once-for-all sacrifice, the righteousness and all the blessings that comes from the being blessed in Christ. God is not the bad guy who's mean and stingy, and Jesus has to convince him to be good to us. So the author is trying to convince his readers that they can trust that God has accepted Jesus's once-for-all sacrifice as actually being effective once and for all, which means believers have a forever right standing with God appropriated by faith in Jesus. And because they have the everlasting righteousness of Jesus, then Jesus is able to sozo them to the uttermost. In other words, he is able and willing to completely provide, protect, and make whole all of those in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of their hard place, if they will put their trust in Jesus and do as he instructs them. So in order to get his readers to trust that Jesus can save them physically, the author is trying to convince them that they are already forever forgiven spiritually. They are already forever righteous. If he can get them to believe that, then believing Jesus will save them physically becomes easy because you know how good he is. You know it's not based on you. It's not based on something that you can provide. It's all about what he has done. The Jewish understanding was that being in right standing with God is what enabled God to bless them and keep them. So it was their doubt that Jesus and his sacrifice were sufficient that caused them to keep taking lambs to the temple in an effort to make sure they were still in right standing. And so the author of Hebrew continues to explain the excellency and the sufficiency of both Jesus as the Son of God and Jesus as our high priest. Verse 26. 
for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Here we see that the excellency of his person required an excellency of domain. Verse 27. He has no need, like those earthly high priests, to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is so much better than the earthly priests because he is the sinless son of God. And because he is also the perfect sacrifice, no more sacrifices are ever needed either. He is the lamb of God who has already taken away the sin of the world. Therefore, we don't need to seek daily forgiveness from sin because our sins are not counted against us, but they have already been counted against the body of Jesus who has already paid our debt in full. Now, this doesn't mean we ignore our sins. <laughs> and sometimes when someone is new to the message of grace, that's what they hear. Oh, it doesn't matter how I live then. You like your life to work out well? <laughs> it matters how you live. <laughs> God doesn't count our sins against us, but everybody else will. <laughs> so it is still appropriate for us to apologize to the Lord for our stupid stuff because people who love Jesus don't like it when they sin. Christians aren't usually trying to sin. <laughs> it doesn't agree with us. It rubs us the wrong way because we have a new nature and a new sinless spirit that enjoys our righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. But when we do fall short of our Father's glorious perfection, the Holy Spirit is in us to comfort us in our stupidity. <laughs> he doesn't berate us in our stupidity. He comforts us in our stupidity and assures us that our Father is not mad. <laughs> and that he is more than willing to help us make right our wrongs and to reveal to our hearts why we chose to act stupidly so that we can avoid making the same mistakes over and over again. My point is that even though God doesn't count our sins against us, he's not okay with us hurting ourselves or others. Sin always hurts in the long run. So I say this so that if someone is new to the message of grace, they don't think I'm saying God doesn't care if we sin. He absolutely does. Sin is dangerous, but it doesn't have the ability to separate us from our Father or His grace. Verse 28. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect as our high priest forever. Here the author combines thoughts from two different Psalms. Psalms 110 verse four says, and the Lord hath sworn and will not repent, we will not change his mind, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Psalms 2.7, see where the Father reveals the identity of the anointed one. I will declare the decree, thou art my son, and this day I have begotten thee. Both of these verses of scripture prophetically point to Jesus and prove that the Father's foreknowledge and plan for Jesus as God's Son to become our perfect high priest was always there. Again, he's trying to convince these Hebrew baby believers that the Father knew what he was doing, that Jesus was foreordained and 
prophesied that he would come and that he would be exactly what he is. Jesus was perfect and perfectly prepared by the Father to be our high priest because Jesus had no sin and Jesus had no impurities and Jesus had no moral weakness like other men. He was perfectly human, perfectly divine, and all of this made him perfect to be our high priest, our personal representative before the Father. And it was all perfectly planned. The Father had foretold the Jews that his very own son would be their forever high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This too would have been an important point to the Hebrew baby believers that their own scriptures reveal these truths regarding Jesus as God's son and Jesus as our forever high priest. And the fact that it shows up in scripture after the law indicates that God never meant for the Mosaic covenant to last forever. I love this because it shows how God had orchestrated the prophecies and the Psalms and how he put it in such a way is that when his believers, in his, the one true and living God as Jews, came into the knowledge of Christ, they would be able to go to the scripture and say, see, it was always supposed to be this way. We were never supposed to have two covenants at once. We were always only ever supposed to have one. Even from the beginning, God promised that the seed of the woman, Jesus, would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. But the old covenant never accomplished anything like that. It never made men free from sin or guilt or fear or shame or condemnation. It only ever found men to be guilty because you had to keep the law perfectly for it to maintain your righteousness, which of course they never could do. But what the old covenant was powerless to do is exactly what the new covenant does. It sets believers free from the indwelling power and presence of sin. And it also frees them from the external demands of the law for righteousness. And best of all, it sets men free to live a supernatural life in and through the Holy Spirit. The author's point is still the same. Jesus is better. <laughs> Even if we can't see him with our physical eyes. Now the Jews, everything in their world was physical. A physical temple, a physical lamb, a physical sacrifice, verbal confession. Everything was physical and tangible. It's really easy to trust what you can see. Which is why... It takes faith <laughs> in order to see that which is invisible. Jesus, even though we can't see him, is still better than all the priests that they could see. The old covenant priests were only ever a type and shadow, a very fuzzy picture of the perfect high priest who was to come with the perfect once and for all sacrifice. The Hebrew baby believers of that time were still struggling to transfer all of their loyalties and faith onto Jesus because they could still physically see and physically experience what was going on at the temple. But what could be more real than what they could physically see and hear and smell and touch? What could be more real than hard things? <laughs> Fuzzy things. <laughs> the Hebrew baby believers needed for the spiritual realities of the new covenant to become more real to them than what they could see with their physical eyes. 
So the author of Hebrews continues to paint pictures of the spiritual and heavenly realities that have replaced the natural, earthly, fuzzy pictures. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now in these things which we are saying, the chief point is this. Basically, he's saying for the last seven chapters, this is what I have said. And I want you to know it's still the main point. (laughs) we have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens Jesus is still better it's like the author here is saying you really need to understand this one primary thing we have right now in reality a great high priest who matches all of the descriptions just given in chapter 7 And not only is he perfectly perfect in his person, he's also perfectly perfect in his priestly work. And he works from a place that is perfectly perfect. He ministers from and through his perfection. All is perfect and complete. And all the spiritual realities he provides are better than the powerless types and shadows found under the old covenant. Also, we know that his priestly work was perfect and complete, Because when he was finished presenting himself to the Father, he sat down. Now, I've known you, you've heard it at least seven times. (laughs) But still, too much of the body of Christ doesn't understand this primary thing. Jesus finished the work of salvation when he offered himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. He was and is the perfect Lamb of God, without spot or blemish, who carried all of the sin of the world into death. Jesus fulfilled in reality all of the types and shadows of the Old Covenant sacrifices in his once-for-all sacrifice of himself. A once-and-for-all right standing with God because Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice is better than all of the Old Covenant sacrifices combined. Because Jesus' sacrifice actually worked. Our sins are purged once and for all when we believe on Jesus. And then we are made truly righteous and holy. So, Jesus doesn't offer us some kind of temporary righteousness that evaporates when we fail to be perfect in our performance. I used to believe my righteousness evaporated (laughs) the moment I failed in any way, shape, or form. And again, I've always loved Jesus. I never wanted to sin. (laughs) I was never trying to sin, but I found that I was never perfect either. And when I wasn't perfect, I thought God was man. You should try harder. (laughs) you should pray more, you should fast more, you should do more, this will make you better. No, Jesus makes me better. Faith makes me better. Understanding my righteousness makes me better. It was the old covenant that offered the temporary righteousness that evaporated in thin air. (laughs) Which is why the old covenant priests could never sit down because everybody's righteousness kept evaporating and they needed another another offering. They had to continuously deal with sin one by one and lamb by lamb. 
but not our Jesus. Our Jesus is better because his sacrifice worked. It has actually purged us from our sins in reality. It wasn't just counted as if our debt was paid. Jesus actually paid it. And then he sat down at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places as our kingly high priest. And he ever lives to make intercession. He ever lives to connect us to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to connect us to all of our Father's goodness and grace and power forever. We will never have a power outage. Jesus will never stop connecting us to the Father. No ordinary earthly priest ever entered the real Holy of Holies, the one in heaven. Only Jesus has. Only Jesus ever will. He alone sits at the right hand of the Father as both king and priest. And he's also, verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. The Greek word translated as minister refers primarily to a public servant. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> we don't think of Jesus as a public servant, <laughs> but that's exactly what he does. He ministers to anyone and everyone. This public servant was a particular kind of public servant in that he served at his own expense. Uh, that was pretty cool. Jesus doesn't get paid. <laughs> and he doesn't need to. We are his reward. But he served at his own expense. That's definitely our Jesus. Because everything we have is at Jesus' expense. And he ministers or serves both the Father and us continuously by connecting us to himself, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. That's his ministry. He holds us in connection with the Father. He does this in a real or truly heavenly tabernacle that is currently invisible to us, but which is both permanent and glorious. Verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is necessary that this high priest also have somewhat to offer. Here the author hints at what Jesus is sacrificed, but he's not going to go into it yet until next time. <laughs> Verse 4. Now, if he were here on earth, Jesus, he would not be a priest at all, seeing there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve that which is a copy and a shadow of heavenly things even as Moses is warned of God when he is about to make the tabernacle. For seeth, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern that was shown thee in the mount. So the Jews always knew that there was a heavenly reality that was being expressed through the temple tabernacle in a sacrificial system. God was very specific on how they were supposed to make the, the tabernacle. And again, it's the tabernacle, not the temple. But its whole system was placed in purpose to foreshadow what was coming. If we didn't have the Old Testament, we wouldn't really know what to do with Jesus. We really wouldn't understand what he did. The Old Covenant was kindergarten. <laughs> and you had to learn what everything meant, the ABCs, the foundation. You had to understand all of that if you're going to understand when Jesus shows up and what it is that he did and why he did it. So it was very, very necessary that they had these physical representations of something they could not 
yet spiritually realize. They've lost focus. Because when, when you have something physical that you're always dealing with, it's a whole lot easier to trust what you're dealing with and not to trust the Father who's invisible. <laughs> but that's really what he's trying to get them to do, to realize how nothing the temple is, how worthless those lambs are, how unhelpful all of that is and was, and to, to cling only to Christ. They had long since forgot what the tabernacle in their midst was supposed to represent. It was the representation of God's manifested presence. They could see the pillar of fire and the, and the pillar of cloud. They could see the physical reality that he was there, but the reality that they were actually supposed to understand was, God lives in my midst. God lives in his people. That, of course, is a copy and a shadow. It's much less than what we have right now. He doesn't just live in the midst of us. He lives in the midst of us. <laughs> the, the whole point that when God came along and said, I want to live inside of you, they're going to go, oh, that's right. You've always wanted to live with us. They're going to understand what God had set up. So the tabernacle was simply a type and shadow of God coming to live on the inside of us in order to have an up-close and personal relationship with us, where we would have a personal experiential knowledge of him and he of us. God knows everything. Why does he want to have a conversation with me? <laughs> I, I, he knows all the answers to the questions. <laughs> Why would he talk to me? Because he wants experiential knowledge of us as well. When you ask your little kid what they did today or they did at school, you already know the answer. That's not the point. It's about having relationship. And that's the part that's important. So the author continues to remind them of who it is that pitched the real and true tabernacle in heaven. The one Moses pitched was physically real, but there was something a greater real a greater reality that he's trying to get them to understand. And it wasn't Moses who pitched this tent. It was the Father who pitched this tent. And anything the Father does is perfect and complete. Only a perfect and complete heavenly tabernacle would be fitting for our great high priest who has opened the way for us to be able to enter into the most holy place in heaven. We live there. We live in God's presence all the time. But the Hebrew baby believers were still struggling with letting go of the earthly ministry of imperfect priests who were offering worthless lambs, simply because it's usually easier for us to trust what we can see than it is to trust the one we cannot see. Which is why the author is drawing pictures of who Jesus really is as God's son and what it is he accomplished as our high priest. He wants them to have the truth of Jesus written on their hearts and mind. That's what he wants to write on our hearts and minds, Jesus. So the author is showing his reader that these spiritual truths should be enough evidence to convince the Hebrew baby believers to let go of the type and the shadow of temple worship and embrace the true and real substance of Christ 
as our permanent connector to our Father and His favor. Because that's really what they were looking for, God's favor. Verse 6. But now hath he obtained a ministry the more excellent than the earthly priests, by so much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which hath been enacted upon better promises. Jesus' ministry as high priest is way more excellent than that of the earthly priests in terms of what the new covenant provides. For starters, our high priest lives in the presence of God all the time. No earthly priest ever lived in God's presence. They visited once a year. (laughs) They never got to stay and have conversations and hang out with God. That's so, so what worship is. It's hanging out with God. That's what we get to do. We get to hang out in his presence. And no earthly priest or sacrifice was ever able to bring eternal life or an eternal connection to God, to those under the old covenant. The new covenant is much more excellent because our high priest is much more excellent. And our father has authorized him to continuously mediate the blessings of the new covenant to us. Not based on our behavior. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He is not trying to keep anything away from us. I don't think no is even in his vocabulary anymore. (laughs) Unless you're going to ask for stupid stuff, then yeah, he'll say no. (laughs) So what he does is he continuously mediates the blessings of the new covenant to us, not based on our behavior, but based on Jesus's behavior. Then we appropriate all that belongs to Jesus through faith. It's a better covenant with better promises because we have a better and perfect high priest. One of my favorite promises is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. I have it for you in the Amplified just because it amplifies it so well. (laughs) It says this, Let your character or moral disposition be free from the love of money, including greed and avarice and lust, and craving for earthly possession, and be satisfied with your present circumstances and with what you have. For he, God himself, has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake you, nor let you down, nor relax my hold on you. Assuredly not. This is an amazing promise, especially when you understand who he's saying it to. These people live behind the shadows. They're running away from everybody trying to not get killed. And he says this crazy thing. I will not fail you. I will not let go of you. I will not leave you helpless. I will not, I will not, I will not. In case you didn't hear it, I will not. (laughs) I love that the Amplified does this, but his point is, you can trust me. You can absolutely 100% trust me to do whatever I've said I'm going to do. God couldn't make this kind of unconditional promise to Israel under the Old Covenant because their covenant was conditioned on their obedience. 
There are no conditions to this. I will not fail you. It doesn't say I will not fail you if you do everything I say. I will not fail you if you tithe. I will not fail you if you go to church on Sunday. I will not fail you if you do this, that, or the other. No, that's not what it says. Because it's not based on me. And it's not based on the law. It's based on Jesus. And Jesus was perfectly obedient. And it is because of his perfect obedience that I get all the blessings. That I get forever connection with God. So without the Israelites being obedient, they could not live in God's blessing. That's just the way their covenant worked. And that is what was wrong with the old covenant. (laughs) It depended on them obeying God. And they found out that they weren't very good at obeying God. (laughs) So they weren't able to enjoy their relationship with God the way God always wanted them to be able to. Without their obedience, the Israelites could not live in God's blessing. And that is what was wrong with the old covenant. It depended on them obeying God. And then they found out they weren't very good at obeying God. And so they weren't able to enjoy their relationship with God the way God wanted them to. The covenant itself fell short of perfection because it couldn't bring a human being into spiritual perfection and union with God. We have spiritual perfection and union with God. We are the bride of Christ, and he has created us as a perfect match to Christ. We are spiritually perfect as he is perfect, so that he gets to have a union that is perfect with us. So we could say that the first covenant had a fault. (laughs) And it's true. The first covenant had a fault. And we can see this truth in the next verse. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then would no place have been sought for a second. The Mosaic covenant was never meant to be a permanent covenant because it didn't actually provide a solution for sin. It couldn't undo what Adam had done. So from the very start, it was only a sin management system full of types and shadows. Verse 8. For finding fault with them, He said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Here the author is quoting from Jeremiah 31 in order to continue to prove his case that God has always planned that the old covenant would have an expiration date. Always. That's why this prophecy shows up in Scripture way after the law was given and just before Israel goes into captivity. Things did not look so good for Israel and Judah at that time. And they knew it. (laughs) I know this old covenant is not working out so good. Now you're going into captivity in Babylon. Time out. I'm keeping you safe. But I got a better plan. (laughs) I got a better way for you. Just hold on. (laughs) So he's encouraging them that he has planned and provided for a new and better covenant. Now, you see, I have added the word it in the first part of this sentence. For finding fault with it instead of them. This word can be translated either way. It isn't that it's wrong. It's just that it's not necessary. (laughs) Because the translators chose to translate the word into them because they wanted the reader to think that the most of the problem was with the people. And yes, most of the problem was with the people. But the covenant had a problem too because the covenant couldn't fix the people. 
The covenant couldn't give them what they actually needed, which was a solution to the sin problem. But in the previous verse, it clearly refers to the first covenant, not the first people. I think that's important because if the people were really the problem, God would have just got new people. (laughs) In fact, he had to do that several times. (laughs) So it wasn't the people that was really the problem. Really the problem was the covenant that couldn't fix the people. So God basically says, I'm going to fix the covenant problem, which in turn will fix the people problem. So God promises to make a new covenant. The Hebrew word translated as make in English carries the idea of something that is brought forth by one's own hand. It's not the typical word that we use for cutting covenant. He didn't actually say, I'm going to cut a new covenant. He said, I'm going to make, I'm going to bring forth by my own hand a new covenant. In other words, it would be completely a work of his hand. (laughs) Completely something he would complete and bring forth in and of his self, we would have nothing to do with it. That's the problem with the old covenant, is that God made a covenant with Israel based on conditions. It wasn't a grant covenant. It was a conditional covenant. And that was the problem, (laughs) because they, they weren't fixed, and they weren't fixable at that point. So both Israel and Judah are mentioned here because God has always wanted his people to be one. I love that. You look in the scripture and you're like, look, they had church splits even back then. (laughs) Israel, 10 tribes goes one way and the other two go another way. (laughs) And God says, doesn't matter. They're all mine. Doesn't matter what camp you want to be in. You're all mine. (laughs) So God's people under the old covenant were promised a new and better covenant in the future that would bring forth a better kind of relationship with God and with each other. Verse 9. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them forth out of the land of Egypt. For they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. It's sometimes hard for us to remember that our covenant is a covenant of grace, How much harder would it have been for the Hebrew baby believers who grew up under the demands of the law to renew their mind and change the pictures of how they see God under the new covenant? So one of the first thing God says about this new covenant is, it's not like the old. (laughs) The old was hard. (laughs) This one is easy. My yoke is easy. So the first thing he says is it's not going to be hard. It's not like the old. It's completely different. It's not based on you. It's based on Jesus. And then he paints a tender picture of himself. I love this because they didn't see God as gentle and tender and loving and kind, even though he was, and he told them he was. (laughs) So he paints this picture and he says, I led your forefathers out of Egypt like a father leads a small child by the hand. In other words, with great loving kindness, because that's who he is and that's who he has always been. When Israel came out of Egypt, they were under the grace covenant made with Abraham. Remember? (laughs) 
<laughs> but they very quickly became very naughty. <laughs> and God had to give them a way to restrain and manage their sins so that they wouldn't completely destroy themselves. So he made a marriage covenant with them. But it turned out they weren't very good at being married either. <laughs> and that's why I highlighted the last part of this verse. In the New Testament English, it says, and I regarded them not. But in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, it actually says, even though I was a husband to them. In other words, even though God was a faithful, loving husband to them, they regarded him not. And he was left without recourse. He had to let them have their own way. But that wasn't what he wanted in his heart. That's not the kind of relationship he wanted to have with them. His heart was always for them. It was their heart that was always running off. He always wanted his people to come back into right relationship with him. You hear throughout the Old Testament, they run amok and God sends prophets and pleads with them to please return, please come back. I am your husband. I will be faithful. I will take care of you. But the problem was that the Old Covenant could not give its people new hearts. The Old Covenant couldn't fix the sin problem. So their hearts were sinful and always running off. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make by my own hand with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and on their heart also I will write them, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Now, some people get a little nervous when this verse talks about this covenant being with the house of Israel. <laughs> because they don't understand how that would apply to them as a new covenant believer. But we must remember who the true Israel is. Jesus is the true Israel. And everyone who believes on Jesus is included in Jesus as spiritual Israel. There is no another covenant coming. <laughs> the nation of Israel under the old covenant was, was called God's son. And anyone who wanted to come into relationship with the God of the old covenant had to come through God's son at that time. Natural Israel. It was a type and shadow. So the nation of Israel was a type and shadow of the true Israel that would come later. The true son of God who would bring the people into a right relationship with the father. So the covenant is actually made between God the Father and God the Son on behalf of all mankind. It is completely a work of God's hand. It's not based on any human other than Jesus. So it's a much better covenant than the old. Under the new covenant, we receive a new heart and a new spirit and the Holy Spirit. And God works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's an inside job <laughs> that transforms a believer into a brand new creation with a brand new heart. And then God himself writes on our hearts what his will and his way is. God reveals himself to our heart, and that inspires our faith. He reveals himself. We have relationship. We can rest, like the song, we, we can rest when we hear God, when we know we've heard him, and he's pointed out the way. He does the writing. He does the speaking. Is it good for us to memorize scripture? Absolutely, but that's not the same thing as God writing on your heart. God writing on your heart is the Holy Spirit speaking to you and revealing the truth to you. Verse 11. And they shall not teach every man his fellow citizen, 
and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. Let me tell you what this does not say. <laughs> this does not say that when we accept Christ that we automatically know and understand everything. <laughs> we don't need any teachers. <laughs> we don't need any scholars. We don't need any. No, I got Jesus. I don't need anybody to teach me anything. I had a man come up to me one day and said, see, I don't need you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Might want to do a little study in there then, because <laughs> that's not what that's talking about. <laughs> His point is the experiential knowledge. Every man will know me. Every man will have relationship, real relationship with me. We can talk and hang out and do fun stuff. <laughs> it's experiential knowledge that he's talking about. Every believer begins their walk not understanding this relationship and how completely he has overtaken us and we're unaware of it. <laughs> how new we really are, because that is what we're always doing that we really are what he says we are. We really are secure. We really can rest. And the more that's the reality in our heart, the more we will walk it out. They will have real relationship with him. Under the old covenant, most people didn't have it. Even those who did like David, please take not the Holy Spirit from me. It was based on their obedience. But under the new covenant, I will never forsake you will never let go of you, no matter how long you scream and kick. <laughs> You're mine forever. Verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and their sins I will remember no more. Now, before I came to the fuller understanding of grace, I always thought this pertained to the sins that I already confessed. <laughs> Cut those out of the way. <laughs> That's not what this says. Our Father promises that he will be cheerfully kind and gracious to our stupid stuff. <laughs> That's what merciful means, because he doesn't punish us for our sins. Our sins punish us. <laughs> He's saying, I will be cheerfully kind and gracious to your iniquities, to all your stupid stuff. I will not be mean and vengeful. He will not remember our sins against us. It doesn't mean that somehow they're, they're not somewhere in God's memory banks. They're not remembered against us because all of our sins have already been counted against the body of Jesus. So sin will not separate me from my Father, my Jesus, or my Holy Spirit. But it could separate me from a lot of other important things. <laughs> like my spouse, my job, my friends, my money, my health, my kids, and even my good future. Sin can be extremely destructive. But the good news is we don't have to choose to sin. Because in the new covenant, that's not who we are anymore. We're not sinners. We're saints. We're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin. Grace causes us to say no to sin. So God on the inside is always at work in us to cause us to want to do the stuff he wants us to do. I love that. I remember when I told God, don't you change my wanter. Because God told me he wanted me to quit smoking. And I said, I don't want to. <laughs> I happen to like it. 
<laughs> he did not listen to me. <laughs> he changed my wanter. <laughs> God can change our wanter. In fact, he has. Sometimes our brain hasn't realized it yet. This is the amazing grace of the new covenant. We get to know him, our Jesus and our Father, and the power of Jesus' resurrection through a brand new heart and a brand new spirit and an unbreakable covenant. Verse 13. In that he saith a new covenant, he has made the first old. And I added the word obsolete. If you look in the Strong's, it does say obsolete. But that which is becoming old and waxeth age is nigh unto vanishing away. This is what the Hebrew baby Christians hadn't yet understood. The old covenant wasn't just old. <laughs> it's like you have two coats, a new coat and an old one. <laughs> nope. <laughs> it was obsolete. That means it was no longer a valid working covenant. And all those who continued in Judaism thought that everything was still working the way it always had. But it didn't. Their offerings and sacrifices no longer had any power to persuade God to be merciful to their iniquities. The entire Mosaic covenant had become powerless to save the moment Jesus died on the cross. That's amazing grace. That's amazing grace. Jesus has done it all. Jesus has paid it all. And Jesus gives it all to us. Just because he loves us. Just because he's good. And we can walk and be assured of this everlasting salvation, this everlasting righteousness, because he keeps telling us chapter after chapter after chapter, <laughs> you need to be positive that your salvation and your righteousness is forever. Our Father is forever pleased with us, with our who, because he's, very he's always pleased with Jesus. That's what we are now. We are one with Jesus. We're one. <laughs> and this is the good news of the new and better covenant. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. Father God, that you are always at work in our lives. You're always at work in our hearts. You're always orchestrating the things in our life to get us at the right place at the right time. We thank you, Father God, that even when things don't go the way we planned, you are the God who is able to turn all things for good. You are the one who steps in and comes to our rescue. And yet there you are. You're always at work bringing us into more and more revelation, more and more into understanding who you've made us to be and how you want us to rule and reign on this earth. We thank you, Father God, that we get to know this new covenant. We get to know this new relationship. We get to understand our identity and what you've called us to do and to accomplish in and through Christ. And it's not work that pleases God. It's faith that pleases God. And we thank you, Father God, that we do get to, by faith, work in and through you in this world. Father God, we ask that you would bless the hearer, Father God, with your word, that the Holy Spirit would speak to their hearts and assure them all is well. I've got you. I've got the answer. I've got the plan. I have known it from the beginning, and I am working all things out for your good. In Jesus' name, amen. 
This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.